Over the last few weeks, we've been in the midst of this series of sermons called The Comparison Trap. And the idea is that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves in life, look around us constantly and we constantly want more. Uh, We constantly are looking to our left and looking to our right and comparing ourselves to our neighbors and our friends and people that we know and co-workers and schoolmates and uh, people that we have in our family or people that we have acquaintances from uh, long ago. And the idea is that we say, do we have more than they do? And most of us live, we talked about, in this land consistently called the land of Ur, right? And this slide's been up on the screen the last uh, couple of weeks, this idea that we want to be richer and smarter and skinnier and taller and hipper. And that, uh, that leads us sometimes to pursue things that aren't what God would have us to pursue. And it makes us completely insecure in who we are. And that some of us are type A personalities. And so being er is not enough for us. We don't want to be er, we want to be est. And so we want to be rich est and smart est and happiest, skinniest, tallest. And the idea there is that we want to be more than anybody else. Now the first week, and this is what I want you to think of this three-week series, as an extended three-point sermon. All right? And so the first week we learn this central truth, which is there is no win in comparison, that there will always be someone with more. There will always be an er out there. Now, the truth is, sometimes we can feel better about where we are than other people, but there will always be somebody with more. There'll always be somebody prettier, somebody smarter, somebody richer, somebody uh, that has a little bit more than we do. And so there's no win. We end up in this cycle where we're consistently trying to track down something that cannot be found. We are consistently hunting for the unknowable, the unattainable. Last week we talked about this idea that true contentment is only found in trusting who we are and what we have in Christ. We talked about having this idea that, um, that the Lord has adopted us into His family, that He has made us one of His children, that He has made us one of His. And as a result, it really shouldn't matter what everyone else thinks or has because if we trust in who we are and what we have in Christ, then we can find contentment in that. Now this week, we're going to move forward from that. And I think it's interesting, Sonny mentioned the first sermon that I ever preached, and, and uh, I won't ask how many of you remember that, but um, it was in, out of Ephesians, it's my life verse, if you will, one of the verses that Susan and I have um, adopted for our family, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 3, and it says, Now to him who is able to do even more than we could possibly think or imagine, to him be the glory as he works through us. What's interesting is if you go back to the verses before that, in verses 17 and 18 and 19, what you discover is Paul prays this great prayer for them. And the prayer that he prays is that they will come to understand the height and the depth and the width of the love of Christ. That they will come to understand how much God truly cares for them and loves them. And they will understand the depth of what God has done for them. And the idea is God can only do amazing and unimaginable things through you when you first understand what He's already done for you. 
which leads to the third point. And that is true contentment allows us to live boldly. Matthew chapter 25 is a parable that Jesus tells with this one single thought. Most of the parables of Jesus have one central idea. And the one central idea in this particular parable is important for us as we think about this um, concept of living boldly for the Lord because basically he's going to tell the people in Matthew chapter 25 that until the Lord comes again, you ought to live boldly with what God has given you. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. Just to give you a little... Um, background of what's happening here. Jesus is teaching about end times. He's teaching about the end of time when he will come again. He is teaching about those kind of things. This is the same sermon, if you will, discourse where he'll talk about no one knows the hour or the day or the time. Uh, Just before this particular parable is the parable of the ten virgins, prepared, unprepared, that idea. And he's giving them throughout these parables different things that they ought to be doing in the time before he comes again. This is near the end of his life. He's preparing his disciples and his followers for life after death and resurrection, for life after ascension, when we will be living out our lives on a daily basis. He's trying to prepare them for what it will be like. And what he says in different parables is, this is the way you prepare, you, or this is what you do. You, you make sure you're prepared for the coming again. You make sure that you're right with the Lord. You make sure that you're one that is doing what God has called you to do. And in chapter 25, verse 14, he's going to tell this parable about living boldly with what we have. Verse 14. For it is just like a man going on a journey. Now, quick question, who's the man going on the journey? God, that's what you said, right? Jesus is going on a journey, right? He's telling them, it's just like a man going on a journey. He called his own servants and turned over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to one two, and to the other one, to each according to his ability. Anybody know how much a talent is worth? Some of you got study Bibles, you're feverishly looking down at the bottom. I can tell you, it is worth 6,000 denarii. That's exactly what you thought, wasn't it? 6,000 denarii. Anybody know what that's worth? Well, denarii is a day's labor. Here's the thing. Because of inflation, it's hard to pin it down exactly. So for our numbers today, I've seen estimates from 600,000 equals one talent, American dollars, 600,000 American dollars, all the way up to 2 million, all right? So we're going to split the difference just for discussion's sake and say that each talent's worth a million dollars. Now, here's the thing. When you read that somebody got five talents, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. When you read they got five million dollars, that makes a little difference, right? Here's what it also makes a difference of. The guy that got one didn't get shortchanged, right? Anybody in here refuse a million dollars if I had a check for you today? I do not want the one talent. I want the five, right? Sometimes we read this and we'll go, well, poor little one talent guy. Of course he went buried. He didn't get anything. I know I'm giving away the story, but you already know it anyways, probably. So this guy gives out the, the owner, and one of the things that one commentary says, the The reality is, if he's giving away $7 million to people, he's got a lot of money. So he gives $5 million to one, $2 million to another, and $1 million to the third. What did the guy with five talents do? He went and made more, right? The guy goes on a journey. Immediately. I love that phrase. Immediately. 
That's an intentional word Matthew used here to say he did not waver, he did not wait, he did not think about it. Immediately, boldly, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, earned five more. In the same way, the man who earned two, who was given two, earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time... The emphasis there is long. We're not talking about two weeks. We're not talking about six months. We're not talking about two years. What Jesus means here is at the end of time. At the end of accounts. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the man who received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Share your master's joy. Then the man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You're faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. And then the man in verse 24, who received one talent, also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But the master replied, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken. Throw his good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness. And that place where there be weeping and gnashing, of teeth. Now sometimes we preach this passage and we get all caught up in the specifics and the talents and even at the end with the weeping and gnashing of teeth and what all that means for us. And it, Here's what I want us to focus on on this occasion. I want us to focus on this fact. That what Jesus was intending to teach above all else is that what He gives us, He intends for us to live with boldly. Right? He gives the five God. What does the five God do? He doubles it. How? How do we know he doubles it? Because it tells us. But what do we know about it? It says immediately he went and put it to work. He invested. He leveraged it. He, I don't know what he did. I don't know if he went down to the market and bought something to sell some more. I don't know if he went and bought some more land that became more valuable. I don't know what he did. Here's what I know. In order to get five more, he had to risk what he had. Right? Are you here? Right? Okay. You're just looking at me. All right. He had to risk it. He had to be bold in his assumptions. He had to be bold in his decisions. And so the guy with five boldly goes out and lives his life and does what he needs to do. And he doubles the master's money. Here's the second thing. This two guy, all right? He does what? Does the exact same thing. He boldly goes out. What's the problem with the third guy? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't try anything. He doesn't risk anything. He's more concerned about safety than he is about living to please his master. 
Right? He's more concerned that he doesn't lose what he has instead of wondering about seeing how he can further what his master has. Here's what I also think is interesting. Whose money is it always? The master's, right? God's, if we're looking at it from that perspective. Does it ever become theirs? No. Some people think, well, he gave him more, but what does he give him? He doesn't give him more money just, hey, it's yours now. It's, he gives him more to take care of. It's always the master's money. He's playing with the master's money. Here's what I want you to understand, and this is something that's important for us to understand. When we come to find out who we are in Christ and what we have in Him, what we discover is it's all His anyways, and we don't have to worry about how we handle it if we're living boldly for Him. You ever heard the phrase, playing with house money? I know you're Baptist, but have you ever heard that phrase? Right? What does that mean? It means you're playing with money that wasn't yours to begin with. Right? You ever heard of a sports team that has nothing left to lose? And they just go out and play with abandon. They don't have to worry about anything. So they're, you know, I watch some of the Olympics and some of those basketball teams that our guys play just... They didn't have a chance. So they're out there throwing threes up. It doesn't matter. We're going to lose by 20. We might lose by 50, right? What basically God is saying to these guys is, it's not yours anyways, so play with it as if it's not yours. Now, here's the thing. In America, that's not how we think of using other people's stuff. We are more careful with other people's stuff than our own. Right? Generally. I mean, if, if you walk into somebody's house, you're generally a little more um, reluctant about how bold you are in moving around the house if they've got lots of valuables there. If someone gives you their car to drive, aren't you a little more careful than if you were in your own? If you say no, you will never borrow my car. Not that anybody would want to, but I'm just saying. But that's not how God intends for us to live life. He says, I know how it's going to work out. I know how it's going to end. I know what is what. You go live boldly for me. He gets mad at the one guy because he didn't take any risk. I shudder to think of what God thinks of most of the churches in America today who are more concerned about safety and security and making sure we keep what we got than living boldly for him. What does it mean to be bold? What is boldness? There's a couple of things I think boldness is. First of all, boldness is simply taking advantage of opportunities that come our way. Notice these guys didn't seek out opportunity, right? The guy's leaving and he gives them opportunities. Here's the reality. Most of us miss opportunities on a regular basis that God puts in our way all the time. Some of you say, no, I don't. Well, that's because you're not looking for them. Let me tell you about what happened to me last Sunday morning. I, um, my normal Sunday morning routine, is, as some of you all know this, I stop at McDonald's on the way in. Grab me a sausage muffin with egg and a large Diet Coke. I know it's not the healthiest meal in the world, but I like it, all right? And as we're pulling through, I always try, I know, that the lady working the window at McDonald's on Sunday morning is not in her dream job. 
Nobody sets to work the early shift on Sunday morning. If that's your dream job, I apologize to you. And so I attempt every week to say something nice, to do some encouragement, just because she is there or he is there. Well, last week, I pulled through, you know, and it was, I, I had tons of stuff on my mind. The, the sermon for last week just hadn't, I'd worked on it all week, had just come together, and I was worried. The, the video, the, the beginning one, one it was just, there were, you know, there are lots of things on my mind. So I get in there, I give her my card, I pay for my meal, I pull up, and as I put my foot on the gas, she just says to me, I hope you have a great day getting to go to church. Now, I know most of you think that today's the first time I've dressed like a preacher in a long time, but, I, you know, generally when I go, she knows who I am, and I dr- come through, I'm pretty dressed up, tie on, whatever. And my foot was already on the gas where I'd already pulled forward, where I couldn't respond. And I realized that today was the first time I hadn't said something kind of encouraging. There are opportunities that come your way every week, every day. To say a nice word, to say something good about what God is doing in your life, to mention our church and what God's doing here, to mention what God has done for you. I compare it often to grandparents or parents that have a new baby. You don't ever have to try to encourage them to take advantage of opportunities to talk about their babies. There's this verse from Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you know it. It says, To live as wise, not as unwise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. This is what I love about that, because... We are so, here's the thing that's crazy about Americans, all right? We live in what some people have called the safest country in the history of the world. And most of us in this room live in some of the safest parts of the safest country in the history of the world. And yet, by American standards, we are often driven by fear. And some people will say, well, don't live as well. Be wise. That means you've got to watch where you're going. You've got to make sure everything's all right. You've got to make sure you're safe and secure. Your 401K is in good shape. Your bank account's in good shape. That everything at work's in good shape. That you're protected at all times. That everywhere you go, you're safe and you're secure. But that's not what is meant by living as wise. What he means is we make the most of every opportunity. So we take advantage of every opportunity that comes our way. But boldness is also about creating opportunity. Now, I'm not saying manipulating God. What I mean is by making a way for opportunities to arise to tell others about who you are and about what Christ has done. Whatever else this guy had to do, when he got his five talents or his millions of dollars, he had to create opportunities to make that money be more. I think the Bible's not specific about how he did it for the reason is because they don't want us to then go, well, that's how you do it. Each of you has opportunities every day to create more opportunities to be bold about your faith. So here's what I want to say as we conclude this series. You need to stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and everybody else is and trust in who you are and what you have in Christ and allow that to free you up to live boldly for him and i'm going to ask you today to be bold in four areas 
If you've got something to write down, write this down. I'm going to give this quickly and we're going to be done. I'm going to ask you to be bold in four areas. Some of them, particularly about this church, but all of them can be in general in your life. First of all, be bold in your prayers. I think, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you this week to analyze your prayers. Now, that's going to feel weird. But I want you to think through what you're praying. Now, for some of you, that means you're going to actually have to pray. And I want you to see how much of your prayer is focused on safety and security for you or your family or for others. How much of it is about making sure medical stuff gets taken care of and financial stuff is taken care of and is about you being safe and secure? And then ask the question, how many of my prayers are about living boldly, proclaiming who Jesus is and furthering the kingdom of God? I think people across this world, if they heard our prayers, would laugh at what we say sometimes. Because most of our prayers are really about getting a little more err. And people across this world, many Christians, millions of Christians, would probably say, you mean you want more? After what you have, you mean you want more. We need to pray that God would move in this church in a way that would be unexplainable by the people outside this church. We need to pray that God would use us in ways that are beyond our imagination, beyond what we can think. We need to pray that God's glory would be shown in this place as a beacon unto a community that is desperate for Him. We need to pray that instead of complaining about all that's going on around us, we would be the change in bringing God to the lives of people who are around us. We need to pray that the glory of God would be the central theme of this church and that God alone would be glorified in this place and that His name would be lifted high. We need to pray boldly and not timid or weak. It says in Scripture that God has not given us a spirit of timidity. But most of the prayers in the American church are timid, tepid, lukewarm. You need to be bold in your prayers. You need to be bold in your sharing. And telling people about Jesus. Start small if you have to. Tell them about how good of a day you've had. Tell them about how good God's been to you. Tell them about how much you enjoy church. Tell them about how much uh, you think about and thank God for what you have. But you need to be bold in telling people. You see, when you come to the fact that God has done so much for you, the reality is it seems ridiculous to not think that God wants to share that with other people. When you're not sharing your faith, you're not being bold. I saw a study this week from a... American Southern Baptist churches where 90% of Southern Baptists thinks it's important to share your faith. And 70% have never done it. Then they really don't think it's important to share your faith. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? If you've never told someone about Jesus, then you don't think it's important to tell someone about Jesus. Be bold in your sharing. Be bold in your time. That's what I mean by that. Be bold in giving of your time and your talent. In fact, the word that we get for talents comes from this parable, by the way. The stuff that we have that we know is kind of a special gift of ours. God gives us each different things that make us unique. And we need to be willing to be bold in using that for the kingdom of God. Some of you in this room need to be plugged in in different places in this church. 
In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a survey out there. We're going to give you opportunities in in a variety of ways to serve in this church. And some of you need to do that. We're having a hard time finding people to serve on the Lord's Supper Committee. It's not a committee, it's a ministry team. And I know that distinction is kind of confusing for me sometimes too. But we're having trouble having people serve on the baptism ministry team. We need help in lots of areas, and we need you to be bold in that. Some of you think, I can't add another thing to your plate, and I want to say thank you to those of you who are doing so much already. But there are some of us in this room that need to be bolder in that. And the last thing I want to ask you to be bold in is in your giving. Not because we need it, although the reality is if everybody decided to stop giving, we wouldn't be here. But because it's... What believers who are completely trusting in Christ do? When I've talked to people that have asked me about tithing or giving and concerns, you know what the reason, the biggest reason people don't is because they don't know if they can. They're too worried about their pile buried out back. Scripture makes it clear. You trust the Lord with all that you are and all that you have. Remember the first week we talked about the two clenched fists? We've got a lot of people in churches today living with two clenched fists instead of one open hand to the Lord. Jesus tells this parable. And it seems harsh almost that he takes the talent from him that had one to give it to the one with ten. The point he's making is to be useful to the kingdom of God, you've got to live boldly for me. And so my question is simply this. Are you, not your neighbor, not your friend, not your Sunday school teacher, not your pastor, are you living boldly, recklessly for the Lord?